Good morning. Uh, we are going to be in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27 through 2, verse 4 this morning. And so if you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn there. If you don't have a Bible, there are some along the aisles. If you guys haven't handed those down, go ahead and do that. And that way people who need them on the inside can have them. You can take those Bibles with you as well. If you need a Bible, feel free. And uh, I want to start by saying that over the Christmas break, I need to confess to you guys I compromised on a long-held principle of mine, sort of a dearly held truth, a way of life. And uh, so I feel like I need to tell you guys this. Let me explain just a little bit. And uh, I'd love to get the slides up there whenever you guys have a chance. Um, There it is. All right. Uh, Let me explain just a little bit. For years, ever since I've been married, my wife has been asking me about the possibility of getting a dog. And... uh, I have resisted, and that is based on principles that I think are generally sound, and that is, I think God made animals, I think they're good. He said everything he made was good, but I do feel like people and dogs ought to sort of occupy separate spheres of the universe, right? Dogs belong outside uh, in an outdoor world where they can do dog things, and people belong in my house, and dogs do not. Well, uh, I've held on to this for many, many years. We've not gotten a dog up to this point. And uh, in fact, uh, it's been difficult because I live in a culture and a society that loves dogs. The people that I work with, my whole staff, every single one of them but me for a long time has had a dog. And uh, they would bring their dog stories to our staff meetings, you know, to how cute their dogs were, uh, the clothes that they bought for their dogs, the sweaters and socks and how how they just they their heart beat for these dogs they would pray you know my dog's spleen is infected would you pray about this with me and I always had a hard time making myself pray for a dog and and so uh you know I was getting all this pressure externally and then as my girls have gotten a little bit older I was beginning to get pressure internally as well from inside my own house and uh it really kind of reached a head Right before Christmas, some neighbors found a couple of puppies out in the country. A couple of beagle puppies that had been abandoned. (laughs) Bear with me because it's going to get a lot worse before it gets better. Um, Found some beagle puppies abandoned out in the woods and uh, in their kindness of heart, they took them in. Now, um, I probably wouldn't have, I think. Again, dogs, they they thrive in the woods. They like the woods. But uh, they picked up the dogs. They brought them over to their house. And uh, a couple of days before Christmas, my wife says to me, now tell me again all of your objections to getting a dog. All right, now this, and this was a serious question. And I could tell as soon as she said it, I'm in big trouble. Because uh, this was the first time she said it with that tone that says, tell me your objections and I will crush them. All right, that was the way... This conversation was beginning, and so uh, I laid them out. I don't want to pay for a dog. Uh, Dogs tend to jump on people. They smell. They make noise. Dogs make messes. Dogs require me to do things other than rest, right? Dogs, uh, I don't want a dog. Here's all the reasons, and so we talked about it for a long time, and uh, I lost um, the uh, discussion uh, because on Christmas Eve, she walked into our living room uh, with this little... I know, this is, yeah, this is where all this is heading, and I know I've just lost the respect of every man in this room, but uh, that's all right. Now, dog's eyes don't actually really look like that, 
that was a picture I took with my phone. Uh, this is uh, this is our dog. She's a little bit bigger than this now, and uh, she's been living in our house, mingling with the, the humans. And uh, so this has been, you know, really a, a kind of a pivotal moment in my life where uh, all of this pressure externally and internally led me to compromise a critical principle that I've held for many, many years. Now, I tell you that story uh, partly just to have some fun, but also because as we look at our passage for this morning, that is exactly what Paul worries is going to happen to the church he's writing to. Not that they'll get a puppy, all right, but that they will compromise critical principles that he's taught them as he shared with them the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as we've looked at the book of Philippians, the thing we've seen is the book of Philippians is a thank you note to this church. They sent Paul a gift for the advancement of the gospel, and he writes a thank you note for that. And in the context of that thank you note, he takes a moment to encourage them and say, you guys are on the right track. You are sharing the gospel. You're investing your money, your time, your life into helping people know Jesus Christ. But he wants also to challenge and warn them not to drift away from the truth. And the danger they face is that there is external opposition to the gospel. And then there is internal strife within their church. And both of those pressures, externally and internally, threaten to draw them away, to distract them from following Jesus Christ. The external pressure in their case was this, that they were Roman citizens in Philippi. They lived in the Roman Empire. And in the Roman Empire, you worshipped the Roman gods and the emperor. Now, you could add a god to the pantheon if you wanted to. So people around them were fine with them worshipping Jesus as long as they also worshipped the emperor. But where Christians got themselves in trouble was when they said, no, we are going to worship Jesus alone as the only way to know God. And at times it resulted in outright persecution. Sometimes they went to jail. Sometimes they had their property taken away. Sometimes they were even killed. At other times it was more subtle. At other times it was simply that they were ostracized by their friends and their family. They lost their jobs. They struggled to make ends meet. And so there's this external opposition, but also there's this internal strife. And you see this throughout the book of Philippians. The people can't seem to get along. And as you get to chapter 4, you're going to see even Paul will name two ladies in particular, Uodia and Syntyche, and he will say, I urge these ladies to get along. Now, how's that for being recorded for all posterity? And they're facing these pressures, and Paul's worry is that they will stop pursuing Jesus Christ with everything they have to worry about external opposition and to attend to this internal strife. And I think that as we read this book, and particularly the passage that we're looking at this morning, I think it is imminently relevant to us. Because those same threats, although they may look different in our cultural context, those same threats, I think, are often the things that keep people from walking with Jesus for a lifetime. The statistics, if they bear out, would say that the majority of us in this room will not be walking with Jesus and sharing the gospel 10, 15, 20 years from now. Sadly, many after college will walk away from the faith or simply settle into an ease of life that will distract you from pursuing Jesus Christ. And I think as I've seen this happen over the years, In college ministry, there are still two things that draw people away. One is external opposition. You're under pressure 
from family, from friends, from our culture, to carry the Jesus thing only so far, but not any further. It's okay to go to church on Sunday, as long as it's a respectable church. But once you begin to risk your reputation, once you begin to risk your career, once you begin to risk your security by telling other people about Jesus, you will get pressure from the culture around you. And much like the Roman citizens, you'll be accused of being intolerant, exclusivistic. And you'll be accused, perhaps, of being a liar, being unkind, being angry. And there's also internal pressure. I've seen people leave the church and stop walking with the Lord because they have a conflict with somebody else in the church. Or they say, you know, everybody around, they're they're too cliquish. They have their friends and they won't let me in, so I'm just going to walk away from the whole church thing. I'm going to walk away from pursuing Jesus because Christians are sometimes jerks. That shouldn't be a big surprise to you by now. But it draws people away from Jesus. And so you still have these same conflicts that Paul warned the Philippians about 2,000 years ago that I think we still face. And the question is, how do we handle those challenges? How do we respond? In a way where we're not afraid, we're not intimidated, we're not distracted, but we continue to pursue knowing and loving Jesus Christ. That's what we're going to look at in Philippians 1.27 to 2.4. And what's great is as we go into next week, if you're here next week, we'll talk about the example of Jesus, the preeminent example of what Paul's talking about in this passage. But he's going to lay down some principles for how do we deal with external opposition and internal strife within the church. All right, starting in chapter 1, I'm going to start in verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict you saw that I had, and now hear that I still have. All right, Paul begins by saying, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In the original language, that word really has the idea of live as a citizen who is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as we've talked about The people of Philippi, remember we talked about, they were really proud of their Roman citizenship. They were one of the few outlying colonies that actually were full Roman citizens, and they were proud of that, and they wanted to live in a way worthy of that. And Paul says, live your life as a citizen worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so he turns their eyes away from momentarily being Roman citizens, even though Paul himself was a Roman citizen. And not ashamed of it. He turns their eyes away from that and says, here you are a citizen of God's kingdom. And so what that means is that citizen of God's kingdom, that you no longer have the same allegiances that a citizen of this earth has. In other words, a citizen of this earth is bound to follow the values of the culture, the world around this earth's citizens, the world around them, it controls them, it owns them. It says the most important things in your life are prestige, reputation, financial security, personal comfort, pleasure. The citizen of this world is owned by those things and has an allegiance to those values. But Paul says, you're not a citizen 
of this earth. So he says, don't be afraid of opposition. You don't have to be afraid of opposition to the gospel because you don't belong to those who oppose you. And this would have been a huge message for those in the Roman Empire because they were told the emperor owns you. You owe him your allegiance. You owe him your life. Paul says you don't. You owe your life to the Savior who bought you. You owe your life to the God who made you. And so what he says is don't be afraid. Whether I come and see you or am absent, I want to hear of you. And this is what he says you need to do. Stand firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So he says in the midst of opposition, you guys, instead of disseminating and going apart, instead you band together. And you look forward and you look at Jesus and you strive. That's a battle term he uses there. You strive side by side for the faith of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what I love about this passage is Paul simply says, you be confident and strong. Now he says, you don't have to go be a jerk. There's no need to insult and to persecute those who persecute you. In fact, he says just the opposite in other places. And Peter and Jesus say just the opposite. Don't strike back, but instead simply stand firm and you say, I know what is true, that Jesus Christ died on the cross, that he rose again, and in him is the hope of eternal life. And I will not back down from that just because I'm threatened. I will not back down from that simply because my way of life might be threatened but I will kindly, gently, and graciously continue to pursue Jesus. One of the best biblical examples of this comes from the book of Daniel. Daniel is a guy that, a Jewish man, devout young Jewish man who's carried into exile into Babylon, and he's put in a cultural environment where he's expected to worship the king, King Nebuchadnezzar. He's expected to worship the Babylonian gods. And here's what Daniel does. Daniel doesn't fight back. Daniel doesn't say, I hate the king. He doesn't say, I hate those around me. In fact, he prays for the king and he tells the king, I, I hope that God will protect you. And yet in the midst of that, Daniel says, I will only worship the true God. I won't eat food sacrificed to idols. I'll trust God to provide for me. The king's henchmen, if you remember, they put together a little plan to stop Daniel from praying. They put in a law that says you can only pray to the king for 30 days. Daniel doesn't go out with a picket sign and say, no laws about praying to the king, right? What does he do? He goes to his window like he always does. He opens it up and he prays. He says, I won't be afraid. I won't be intimidated. In the midst of their opposition, I will continue to serve God. And you and I have the same choice. You're not likely to be tossed into a pit of lions, right? Or into the Baylor bear pit where the bear will sleep until he realizes you're there, right? You're not likely to be tossed into a pit. You're not likely to be thrown in jail, but you will experience opposition. If you begin to say, I want my family, I want my neighbors, I want to share the gospel. Maybe if you decide that this is the year to go overseas on summer project, you may face opposition. Maybe that you decide when you graduate from college, you're going to choose a career that allows you to most effectively honor and pursue Jesus Christ instead of the one that will necessarily make you the most money. And you're going to face some pushback for that. 
And the challenge for us is, will we continue to simply be faithful? You will face opposition. I can remember um, one incident in particular when I was in high school, in a very small way, facing opposition for stand that I had taken to follow Jesus Christ. And some of you may have faced something similar. I went to a dance with a young woman that had uh, invited me to one of these you know, dances where the girls invite the guys. And uh, we got there. And um, shortly after we got there, I noticed that my date seemed agitated with another girl at the dance. And they began to talk to each other very loudly. It looked like they were about to come to blows. And so it was the most interesting evening I'd had on a date, uh, because my date was about to get into a fight uh, with somebody else's date. Well, once I figured out the source of the conflict, I realized that it had a lot to do with me. Here was the deal. Um, We went to this dance together, and this other girl and her friends were hosting a big uh, drinking party afterwards. And they knew that I was not a kid that typically engage in those activities. So because of that, they didn't invite me nor my date to the party. My date was upset because she wanted to go to the party. She came back from her little near fight and uh, she ditched me for the rest of the evening. She hadn't found another guy that was going to go to the party. So I sat and I enjoyed my punch and uh, took her home. That's a small thing, right? In the grand scheme of eternity, does it really make a big difference? Eh, Well, maybe not. But it's a small opportunity to reflect Jesus Christ graciously and yet firmly. And you're going to face all kinds of those opportunities throughout your life. And you may go, you know, it's really not a huge deal whether I approach my studies honestly or not, right? Everybody else is cheating. Does it really matter? You have an opportunity to do what is right. It's really not a huge deal whether I choose to invest 150 hours a week in my career and I never get involved in a church community, right? Or is it? And the small choices that you make to either cave to the opposition from our world or to pursue Jesus Christ will largely determine how closely you're walking with him 40, 50 years from now. So Paul says, don't don't be intimidated. Don't be afraid. Because you have a God that is stronger and greater than the powers of this world. One of the things about our new puppy, if you've had a puppy, is uh, you know that puppies like to jump on people. They nip at you. They, They have to learn who's in charge. And that's hard for particularly my daughters at times. Because the dog will jump and bark and we're training her not to do that. But occasionally she'll back them into a corner and she'll be barking, and she'll be jumping, and she's never hurt them. But the kids are having to learn something very important that I keep reminding them of, and it's this. You're bigger than the dog, right? You're in charge. If the dog sees that you're afraid, and you back into a corner, she's just going to keep coming. So you just walk past, and you say, no, puppy, no, right? And you walk past. Don't be afraid, because you're more powerful. That's what Paul says. Don't be intimidated. Don't be afraid. But continue to pursue and seek and proclaim Jesus Christ. Peter says something very similar. First Peter. But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. 
yet do it with gentleness and respect. All right, you see that pairing of boldness, no fear, and yet gentleness and respect. And that's the pattern the apostles set for us. If you read through the book of Acts, Acts chapter 5, you'll see Peter and the apostles, they're sharing the gospel and they're called in before the Jewish authorities and they command them, you must not preach in the name of Jesus. And they threaten them with jail and at times they went to jail, but Peter stands there and he says, we have to obey God rather than men. We can't obey your no preaching about Jesus rule. Sorry. But when they're persecuted and when they're thrown in jail, instead of lashing back, instead of getting angry, instead of calling the lawyers, they sit in jail and they worship Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul's calling us toward. I think you're going to find, if you haven't already, that the university culture in particular is becoming more and more hostile toward Christianity, toward Christian organizations, toward Christian groups, toward the sharing of gospel on campus. And how do you respond to that? Do you get angry? Do you sue? Do you shrink back? Do you go away? Do you go hide? Or do you simply say, I'm going to be faithful to what Jesus has called me to do, which is to make his name known, even in the midst of a world that doesn't value him. Paul says, do not be afraid of opposition. Secondly, 2, 1 through 4. Don't be distracted by internal conflict. Look at chapter 2. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. All right, the Philippian church, like I said, they're also struggling with internal conflict. And what Paul is saying is, if you want to be able to accurately and effectively represent Jesus Christ, you have to do it together because no one person can stand as an island in the midst of all this opposition and expect to stand well. God has given us one another and he has given us the Holy Spirit who binds us together. And as a result, whatever small differences we may have, whatever offenses may have been committed against you, your responsibility is to set those aside, to lay aside your personal rights and focus on striving side by side for the truth of the gospel. And that's on the basis of what he says in verse one, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if knowing that Jesus has died for you and risen again is any encouragement at all to you, if there's any comfort from love, that the implication here is the love of God the Father that's been poured out on you and me in Jesus Christ, that even when the world hates you, you know God loves you because of Jesus Christ. If there is any participation or fellowship or community in the Holy Spirit, so you have this triune Trinitarian formula, God loves you. He gave Jesus who comforts you and the spirit lives within you and binds you together as believers in Jesus Christ. If any of that is true, which it is, then Paul says, make my joy complete as your leader, as your shepherd, by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord. Do nothing, nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, consider others better than yourselves. That's a hard task. And yet Paul says we do it through the power of the Spirit that lives within us. It's a very countercultural idea. 
Because every day we are told that you are most important. You matter the most. Take care of yourself first. If anybody gets in your way, run them down. If they disrespect you, make sure they respect you. Claim your rights. You have the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and you should claim it at all costs. If your roommate wears your shirt without asking, beat him with a stick, right? Because it's yours, and you have that right. Paul says, no, you don't. Now, keep in mind, he's not saying that we set aside the preaching of the gospel, because that's a command and obligation given to us by God. He's not saying we don't fight for that, nor is he saying that we allow men and women to victimize or harm others or to harm the church. Paul protects the church and its people. And he doesn't allow predators in. He's very hard on them. But what he does say is on an interpersonal level, you and I are called to set aside our personal rights and demands for the sake of the gospel. If you've been wronged, let it go. In one place, Paul even says, if you have been sued, why not rather be defrauded than sue back and shame the name of Jesus Christ? I have, um, my kids are seven, four, and two, and so I'm familiar with kind of the toddler world. And if you've ever watched toddlers playing, give a couple of toddlers a bucket of Legos, and you can give them the Legos, and you can even give them the instructions for how to build a six-foot-tall rocket ship and set them off, and they will never get it done. Why? Well, because they think that all the Legos belong to them, right? So they will each try to grab as many as they can. They will sit over here and they will build their own thing. This one over here will build his own thing and they will never get together. And occasionally this one will come over here and just grab the Legos from this one and run back over here, right? And then this guy will come back over and shove this guy on the ground and grab his Legos and come back over here, right? Nothing will ever get built. Actually, uh, you may have heard this before, but I ran across a thing again this week called the Toddler's Creed. Here's how it goes. If I want it, it's mine. If I give it to you and change my mind later, it's mine. If I can take it away from you, it's mine. If it's mine, it will never belong to anybody else, no matter what. If we are building something together, all the pieces are mine. If it looks just like mine, it's mine. Right? If it needs to be fixed or it's broken or it needs to be put away, it's yours. All right? That's the way that they think. Imagine if airplanes were built that way, right? You walk up to an airplane and the engine doesn't quite fit into the body. The seats are all different sizes and shapes. Uh, The wings don't fit on right because every engineer just kind of made his own little thing and they slapped it together. Would you get on that? Absolutely not. But sometimes that's the way we operate in the body of Christ. I'll never forget several years ago, I led worship for a church in another town and I had just started and the the pastor had this idea that he wanted to change the style of worship and so that's why they hired me and we sat down at a lunch because some of the members of the worship band previously were upset with the worship style which was slightly different from what they had done before. And so I'm sitting at this table and it was one of those real odd surreal experiences where I'm sitting there and everybody is talking about me. 
and how they don't like what I'm doing. Some people like it, some people don't, and they're arguing. And I'll never forget, in the midst of that discussion, one lady who'd been there for a while, finally she just could contain it no longer, and she said, what about me? What about my music that I love, that I care about? What about me? And I just remember thinking, man, that, that attitude... As much as I want to judge her for it, it's in me too. Because even as they're talking about me, I'm going, what about me? It's in you too. And if we're honest, on a day-to-day basis, we would rather stick up for ourselves and what we want than for the gospel. When I was in college, I had a roommate that I had known from back home. I'd known him for years And he was also a Christian, and uh, we were close friends. And one day, I uh, walked into the room, and he had some music playing. And so I sat down and kind of tried to study. And uh, he walked out of the room for just a a couple of minutes. I thought he was leaving for the afternoon. And so uh, while he was gone, I turned off his music, and I turned on something I wanted to listen to. He walked back into the room about five minutes later, and he goes, Hey, why'd you do that? I wasn't done listening. And this was back before we had, you know, iPhones with our own, you know, deal and all that kind of stuff. And I said, well, you, you were gone. I turned your thing off. And he goes, I was coming back. I said, well, you didn't say that. And he said, well, I was. And I said, well, I'm sorry, I already changed it. It's just, you know, the moment's gone. Um, <laughs> I, I was real soft-hearted. He said, uh, no, the moment's not gone. He turned on his stereo over mine, just a little bit louder. I said, no, no. I win. I turn mine up just a little bit louder, right? He turns his up just a little bit louder. Now, we're in a dorm, an on-campus dorm. We have suite mates. Stereos keep going louder and louder and louder and louder. And we're standing on the opposite side of the room until both of them are literally at full volume, playing just completely opposite stuff. Finally, I don't remember who. One of us got frustrated, stormed out of the room, left. The other one said, all right, I win, right? Turned off the other person's music and began to study. Within five minutes, both of us, of course, go... We're idiots, right? Come back and apologize and recognize that in that particular dorm, on that hallway, to our knowledge, we were the only Christians. We were the only ones that consistently we saw getting up to go to church. Uh, We knew several of the other guys. We thought, what a great testimony for Jesus, right? Yeah, we do that a lot. Think about the rights that you want to cling to. You want to be respected. You want everybody to treat you well. You want them to say things to you that are kind, that are appropriate. You're perhaps protective of your money. If somebody tries to threaten your financial security, taking the food that you bought and paid for, making you pay more taxes than you think you should, you cling to it. It's your right, right? Your possessions, your stuff, you own it. It's your right. Uh, your liberty. You want to do what you want to do when you want to do it. If a professor is unfair with the amount of time that he makes you work, you want to torch his place, right? What are the rights that you're clinging to that if you're honest, you say, clinging to this perception is not going to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ? Paul says the quickest way to fold under external opposition is for all of you Christians to get together and begin to beat each other instead of looking outward and saying, we're going to share Jesus Christ. 
And, and the more I look at the scripture, the more I just simply cannot get around the idea that this theme is repeated over and over and over and over again. And as much as I would like to cling to my American idea that, that I've got all of these rights that nobody should violate, I just don't see it in the scripture. Instead, what I see is people imitating the example of Jesus Christ and setting those aside for the sake of the gospel. So the question is, uh, what are you fighting for? seems like Paul says, if it's about the things of Jesus Christ, I won't back down. I won't slink away. I won't be afraid. If it's about me, I better set it aside. I don't know where each of you is this morning on your own spiritual journey. It may be uh, that you've never come to a place where you understand or have believed in Jesus Christ for eternal life. If that's you this morning, the simple message is that what Paul is talking about, what Paul values above everything else, what he gave his life to, was the gospel of Jesus Christ because Paul really believed that the only way to have eternal life, to know God, to avoid punishment for our disobedience, was to believe in what Jesus had done, that he died on a cross in our place. He took our sin on himself and took the punishment, and then he rose again. And Paul was confronted with that truth, and it turned his life around. And if you have not yet believed in Jesus Christ for eternal life, the challenge simply to you this morning is that that is where this process begins, knowing God and knowing what really you're here for, which is to worship him and then to call others to worship him. If you have believed in Jesus Christ, as we close, really simply, the question is this, what are you fighting for? When you think about the things that you get up in arms about, when you think about the things that you care about, things you spend your time protecting, are they the things of Jesus Christ? Or are they the things of this world? Are they the things that advance the gospel? Or are they the things that protect your own liberties? What do you and I need to do to transform our priorities and our actions so we can stand up strong in the face of external opposition and then come together as a body of believers? Can you imagine if on this campus, in this nation, in this world, there was a movement of men and women who said, I want to set aside what I think is important in my agenda to share the gospel, even if it's hard, even if it means suffering, even if it means that I'll face opposition. I want to be faithful to that. What do you need to do to transform your priorities to those of Jesus Christ? Would you pray with me? God, we love you so much and thank you for your word. It challenges us, it convicts us. Each of us in here is a person who often insists upon our own way of doing things over against your way. Each of us is a person that is often afraid to stand up for your truth, but we are bold when it comes to standing up for what we value. Forgive us and teach us another way. Father, I pray we would rely on the power of the Spirit of God who lives in us that each day and each moment we would trust him. As we follow you and as we remember the encouragement you have given us in Jesus Christ that you love us, We don't need to fight for our rights because we're secure in you. 
We don't need to fear the world because we're secure in you. So God, I pray, make us faithful. I pray from this group in this room, you would stir hearts to go all over the world, that men and women would devote their lives, whatever career they have, whatever town they live in, they would devote their lives to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank you, God, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll see you next week.